So one of my favorite movies growing up, I probably saw it at an age that it was not appropriate for me to watch it, but that movie was Forrest Gump. Many of you have, have probably seen Forrest Gump by now. I think it won several Academy Awards. But uh, it's, it's still one of my favorite movies to this day. When I think about it, I'm still emotionally impacted by, it, by the story. Um, and, and mostly because of the character Forrest Gump. It's as if the one character who shouldn't have life figured out, who shouldn't really know what to do in, in most every situation, he's the one who knows what to do in every situation. If you think about it, um, he's flawed, of course, but he, he, he somehow does that. Now, listen to this exchange from the film where Forrest reconnects with Jenny, his love interest. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. This is a huge spoiler, um, but, uh, but spoil away. Um, and so uh, this is an exchange where, where Forrest reconnects with Jenny. That's his whole purpose in this film was to reconnect with her. And, uh, and he's there at her apartment. He says, after seeing her child come in, you're a mama, Jenny? She says, I'm a mama. His name is Forrest. Forrest says, like me. Jenny says, I named him after his daddy. Forrest says, he got a daddy named Forrest too? Jenny says, you're his daddy, Forrest. And so Forrest actually takes a step back at this moment and doesn't comprehend the, the gravity of the situation, or maybe he does. But his response is interesting. Jenny tells him, like, look at me, don't, don't worry, he didn't do anything wrong. And Forrest, uh, she asks him, isn't he beautiful? And Forrest says, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But is he smart, or is he recognizing his own frailty? He says, is he smart, or is he like me? Before she can answer, uh, he, uh, he can finish the statement, she tells him, uh, he's smart. He's one of the smartest in his class. And he's tearing up at this moment. It's awesome. And then he goes and connects with his son. And after this, he takes Jenny, after finding out that she's dying, takes her into his home and cares for her, Take, cares for her son. And then she passes away and he cares. I think Forrest Gump personifies a kind of selfless, a self-forgetfulness in the face of whatever setback came his way. It's really interesting to think about. And I think what we want to look at in our text this morning, as I read it, uh, is this type of selflessness. I think Paul exemplifies it for us here. This type of selflessness that never lets love turn inward, right? Love is always looking for a place of expression. It's not crushed by external forces. It's always looking outward. It endures all things. Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. We thank you that it is good. It is good news for us. We thank you that it is a, it tells us of Jesus. So I pray by your spirit, you would remind us of your good news in Jesus that you've, uh, you've given to us. That may we be edified by your word. May we be challenged, but, but, but may we be encouraged. Mostly let us see Jesus uh, where he is clearly seen here in our text. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
So Christian maturity, this is what we want to explore a little bit today. What does Christian maturity look like? What does maturity look like in the face of, of adversity, in the face of setbacks? Um, we want to look at this. And, uh, and, and, and the ESV notes, I love this. This is one sentence and they're talking about Philippians. It says, maturity doesn't come through a special insight that's only available to a select few. It says, Christian maturity is available rather to everyone through the patient practice of the familiar virtues of love and service to others. Maturity comes, virtuous living comes through love and service to other people. I want to argue that in the face of adversity, in the face of opposition, this is where it comes to, uh, comes to fruition in a, in, a, in a really deep way. Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians while he's in prison. Um, at the end of his life in Rome, um, potentially going to go to, uh, he doesn't know whether he's going to be released or he's going to actually go to his death. Uh, we know uh, through history, we know that he actually did pass away at this time. That's the context. He's faced a setback. He's in prison. He can't go out and preach the gospel as a traveling evangelist uh, of his day would. Um, and uh, one scholar says that it's like a guy who's had who, uh, a concert pianist who has his hands tied behind his back. That's where we find Paul here. He's faced a huge setback to, uh, to, to, his, to his mission. Not only that, we have people on the outside who are preaching the gospel, but some are preaching Christ for selfish gain, to, to gain at his expense and to also uh, to afflict him in his, in his uh, situation that he's in. They're envious, they're self-centered preaching. He has two things happening to him right now, right on top of the other. Now, what's going on here? Paul responds to them. It's amazing how he responds to the opposition and to these uh, opponents of his. It's amazing. A first century letter, much like a letter in our time, it follows a certain structure, right? If you write a, uh, an email now or if you still write handwritten letters, you, you do it the same way. Dear so-and-so, you maybe have a, a brief word about them. How's your family doing? Uh, appreciated, whatever it is that you, you've done. And then you get into the meat of it. You don't begin talking about yourself. Eventually you get to talk about yourself and why you're writing. Uh, in the first century, letters followed a certain structure. And if you look at the letters that we find in the New Testament, they follow this structure. There's an introduction of who it's written by, a greeting, thanksgiving, prayer. And this is what Paul does here. But then at the point where uh, you would expect... Certain letters at this time would follow this trajectory. You would expect the person that's writing the letter to talk about themselves, how they're doing, how they feel, um, what's going on. And Paul, as the, the Philippians are reading this letter, um, would have potentially expected him to say something about himself, how he feels. Does he have everything he needs? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about that. He talks about something else entirely. It's awesome. Instead of venting or complaining about his situation, he does something completely different. Instead of venting, he talks and he, he sets their attention, their eyes on something that's bigger than him, on something that's more important than his setback. He doesn't diminish the gravity of his situation. It's bad. We can call it bad. But he doesn't talk about himself or how he feels. He talks about the gospel. It's awesome. It's awesome. I want to make a small qualifier here. Um... I don't want to argue that whenever you're struggling, whenever you face opposition, when somebody comes and opposes you, that you can't process that. I don't want to argue that you can't. What I want to argue is that it's actually the opposite. You can process it. The reason why I chose Psalm 142 is because we see the psalmist processing their struggle, right? There are people that are opposing me. None are for me. What do I do? What do I do? 
Paul is experiencing tough circumstances here. And when we face them in our lives, I want to argue that you can do that. The Psalms, the scriptures give us the room to process that. My mom, uh, there are two things going on right now that are bad in in our life, in our life as a family. Um, One of them is not that bad, but it's it's just an extreme thing. My younger brother decided to go on a cross-country hike after quitting his job. He's going to be 31 soon, maybe he's midlife. Can you call it midlife crisis? Anyway, he decides he wants to go on a cross-country hike, um, and my mom is shocked, probably because he quit his job. He doesn't have, he's not making any money right now. He's going to starve. He's going to die in the wilderness, whatever. Uh, she's, she's afraid. Uh, it's not bad. He was a Marine. He can, he can survive. Um, but around the same time that she heard this, we heard this, my, uh, we heard my older brother uh, broke probation, and, uh, and he just had his trial, and he's now going to be sentenced to, uh, to a year of, of rehab because it was drug-related. But these two things right on top of each other came to my mom's life. She texted me. We were talking together through text. And she said this. And it's a really sad thing she said. And I, I, I challenged her on it. But she says, but God doesn't give me more than I can handle, right? And I said, yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. The things that go on in your life, the, the setbacks, the, the unjust treatment, all of that is more than you can handle. The gospel is not you're strong, bear up under the weight of it. The gospel is you're weak, but there's a strong God who's coming to save you. Right? So process the struggle. I don't want to argue that you can't process it. But what I want to argue here is that Paul doesn't use this opportunity to process his struggle. He actually uses it as an opportunity to set a, uh, a trajectory for the Philippians, a pattern for them to go after. You don't have to praise God for imprisonment. You don't have to praise him for setbacks. You need to praise him despite the setbacks that you find in your life, despite the opposition. But we need to see here is that life is not about turning inward. Life is always about looking outward. Process, yes, but life is about turning outward in love and service toward others. What happens whenever you face opposition? What happens whenever you face a setback? Our natural inclination is that we do turn inward. Our natural inclination is that we want, we want others to come and care for us, which is totally fine. But do we forget in those moments that God has put us to love and care for others that are around us? So Paul models maturity here. His response is an expression of love and service, even when things are going very poorly in his life. I think he does that for two reasons, and we'll look at two things briefly, uh, is that the gospel has brought clarity to a situation. The bad is as bad as it is, but the gospel clarifies uh, why the bad things are bad things and, and, uh, and his situation, uh, why it looks the way it looks. So the gospel brings clarity to, switch, to a situation, and the gospel also brings clarity to what's most important. It clarifies what's most important. All right, so first, the gospel clarifies our, our situation. So Paul understands his circumstances are bad. He understands even his opponents. He calls them what they are. They're, they're opponents. They're opposing him. They're self-centered. They're prideful. And they're envious. C.S. Lewis says that pride is essentially, uh, at its core, it's competitive. Pride is not about wanting more of something, right? Pride is wanting more of that thing than somebody else. Pride is wanting to have something instead of somebody else. Pride leads to, uh, Scott Saul says, pride leads to envy. And I think he's right. And he says envy is so sinister because it, uh, it, it's never at peace. Whenever we should be rejoicing when others are rejoicing or weeping when others are, re- are weeping, we do the opposite. Envy leads us to weep when others are rejoicing 
I'll rejoice when others are weeping. The best way I can picture this is, uh, is my, my relationship with LeBron James. I don't have a relationship with LeBron James. He doesn't know about me, doesn't care about me. But ever since he got into the league, I've really hated the guy. And I know I'm not supposed to hate anyone. And it's not because he's beaten my Spurs in the finals. It's, it's not only that. I have just an unnatural dislike of the guy for some crazy reason. And it took me years to figure this out. I just went along with my, my hate. When he lost in the finals, he's lost a lot of times. I'm rejoicing. Um, whenever he wins in the finals, I'm weeping. But, uh, but I, I figured out why that was, and I, and I realized, I realized it, was, it was envy. I'm antagonistic toward him. I don't want to see the guy win. I don't. I don't want to see him win. Um, it doesn't matter who he's playing. And in this last final, somebody asked me who I wanted to win. I said neither. But, uh, but, but who, do I want to? No, I don't. Why? Well, because I envy the guy. He's just too good. He's just too good. That's what's going on in these, these antagonists of Paul. Paul has a name. He's an apostle. He's preaching. He's planting churches. People are coming to know. These com- competitors, the ones who have set themselves up against him, don't want to see Paul win. Not only that, he's now in prison, and now at the end of his life, potentially going to go to his death, which he does, and they're rejoicing about it. They're rejoicing. Paul knows that. It's amazing. If I know somebody is approaching me in that way, I don't approach them in that way like Paul does. I'm just like, I'm ready to fight them. I'm going to send some, some goons to go and take them out. But Paul doesn't do that. He goes easy on them. It's awesome. The gospel gives us room to understand that. But the call is that we go easy on them. John Newton says that when people are right with God, they're apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they're not right with God, they're easy on themselves and hard on other people. These opponents of Paul are being extremely hard on him. But did Paul go hard on them? He goes easy on them. Love is easy on other people. Even if you understand the situation to be as bad as it is, as bad as it looks, Love is easy on other people. Paul doesn't criticize his antagonists. He doesn't fight with them. He doesn't enter their courtroom. He just calls it what it is. And then he does something different. He doesn't let them get to him. He doesn't turn inward. He doesn't fight and turn outward. He just directs his attention at something else. He sees the situation as what it is. He has clarity. The second thing he does is that the gospel has brought clarity to what's most important. It redirects us, redirects his attention to what's most important. And there are two things that are most important here. And the only reason why Paul responds the way he does, I believe, is because two things are going on. One is implicit in the text and the other is explicit. One is implicit. The implicit point of the text is in any text is that the gospel tells us who we are and tells us who, what our status is. The only way Paul moves forward in this situation is because he knows who he is. He knows who he is to God and who God, what God has done for him. His status is more important. He's working from a place of being full. From being full. His opponents are empty and they're trying to be filled up by so many things because they're trying to earn their status. Trying to make a name for themselves. Paul's already full. He doesn't need to make a name for himself. He doesn't need to make a name for himself. Tim Keller uses this illustration. He used it in a sermon series he did on Philippians, but I love it. He says Christians should be the most buoyant people in the history of the world. We should be buoyant. He says, we should be like that beach ball that you take into the water, and you take into the pool, and you, you press it down into the water, and if you're holding it down there, it stays, but what happens when you let it go? To the surface. He says, Christians always go to the surface. Why? Why is Paul at the surface here? Because he knows, if God is for me, who can stand against me? 
God knows that if, uh, uh, Paul knows that if God is my father who loves me, who's caring for me, then what do I care what these other people think about me? Why do I care whether they're winning at my expense or they're envious of me or whatever? Why do I care? I don't need to vindicate myself. St. Augustine said, uh, our early church father, he says, Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. How often when we face opposition, we face opponents coming against us, do we seek to vindicate ourselves? We can't respond in love if we are seeking to, to vindicate, like, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, uh, um, man, Lord, deliver us from that. Augustine says that rightly. If you're filled up by something that can't be deflated, if your status as a child is what fills you, then it doesn't matter. Then you can withstand the poke of a sharp needle, right? Paul, the only reason why he doesn't deflate here is because he's filled with something that can't be taken away. If Jesus is what fills us, if we know we're out of the courtroom, we don't need to be vindicated. We already are vindicated because of Jesus and our union with him. Colossians 2.14 says we're dead When we were dead, God made us alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, you've been brought into the courtroom. You don't need to vindicate yourself. God has already, if you're in Christ, has already given you your status. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're loved. You're you're, you're loved because Jesus died for you. You're out of the courtroom. The reason why we seek to vindicate ourselves is because we forget our status, forget our place. Paul reminds us here, I believe implicitly, that, uh, that, 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 that he's okay. Whether, whether his situation turns out the way he needs it to, whether he's vindicated uh, by the courts, whether these opponents stop attacking him, Paul is okay. He's a son of God, and God will care for him. God will care for him. So, gospel clarifies what's most important, his status. More explicitly in the text, uh, the, the gospel actually draws us to what's most important. And what's more important than our circumstances, what's more important than whatever it is that's going on in our lives, is the mission. Our mission is the, the, uh, to seek the gospel advancement, to seek the kingdom advancing. When you begin to focus less on what's going on around you, these small pieces, small pieces of the puzzle of our lives that we're in, Um, when we begin to focus on something that's more important, a bigger picture, it becomes easier for us to love our neighbors. It becomes easier for us to love those that are around us when we don't think that this is the end of the world, that the setback isn't as crushing because we know that even if we are crushed finally here on this earth, we will raise again to new life with Jesus. Even if the setback continues to press us down, we will still have the presence of God with us. We will still have the presence of God with us. Paul saw clearly what was going on around him, the mission. He says clearly in the text, he says, What's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I may be in chains, the gospel's not chained. Because of the chains that I'm in, imperial guards, Roman guards are actually coming to know Jesus. Man, He's not thinking about the imprisonment. He's thinking about the mission. People are coming to know Jesus around me. That's, that's awesome. And then he goes on and says that because of my imprisonment, because I'm in, uh, being afflicted, people are more bold to preach Christ outside of the prison walls without fear. The gospel continues to go forward. They're continuing to preach even though I'm here, and they're doing it without fear. And then finally, he says, 
There are some even who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but some are from goodwill. Some are preaching from love. Others are seeking to afflict me. But, but what's my response to that? What then? Jesus is being preached. That's all I care about. That's all I care about. Let, they're winning, people would say. Paul, why are you letting them win? I don't care. Let them win. Jesus is being preached. That's all I care about. Paul is focused on what's most important. The gospel's brought clarity to that. Whether he's in chains, whether others are preaching for selfish gain, Jesus is the most important thing that's happening. His kingdom being built. Paul focuses on that. And he does that, and it leads him to, uh, to not respond uh, the way you or I possibly would. God's at work, church, friends. God's at work. doesn't matter what's going on in your life. Our calling is actually to continue to look outward, to continue to love and serve our neighbors, even when things don't go the way we expect. If you're honest, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, I don't respond the way that Paul does here. You can ask my family, I don't respond that way to adversity all the time, right? And if I did, I would be, cru- if, if, if it were up to that, I'd be crushed. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it's not necessarily my status my maintaining my status as a Christian, it's not actually dependent upon my performance, even in the, in the midst of responding in a Christ-like way to this situation. God's still at work. But what's awesome is that what this text should actually do for us, this challenge, like the law, as we look at the law and we look at what whole living is, that's love and service toward God and toward our neighbor, what it does is actually shows us the ways in which we don't do that. But what it also does is that, as for a believer, it actually drives us to Jesus. It doesn't drive us to perform more. It drives us to Jesus, the one who performed perfectly for us. So, friends, this isn't a moment to crush you. This is a moment for us to look at the way in which Jesus did this perfectly. Jesus was the one who faced opposition, setback, and he never turned inward. He never focused on his circumstances didn't see, focus on the people who were seeking to afflict him. He focused on the Father, on the mission. He focused less on what was happening to him and focused more on uh, the people that were around him, why he was doing what he was doing, because he wanted to save, and he was going to secure salvation for his people. He selflessly gave himself up so that we, we would never be crushed by our circumstances. That's what Jesus does, and that's what we've entered into. If you're in Jesus, that's the gospel. It's not try harder, bear up under the weight of your circumstances. It's actually look at the one who bore the weight of the consequences of sin on himself so that you and I would never fully feel the weight of the circumstances that we actually deserve. King Jesus, Scott Saul says, whose kingdom is forever, his government will always increase. He looks at every square inch of the universe and declares, it's mine. He won this right by sacrificing himself. He gained exaltation by taking a low position. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, took off his royal robe. He placed it upon us. He handed us his sword. He made himself vulnerable to us, and we used it against him. He did not strike back. Instead, he did nothing out of rivalry or conceit. In humility, he counted us more significant than himself, looking not to his own interest, but to the great need of humanity dying from a fixation on itself. Jesus has died for our fixation on ourselves. What drives you to become more selfless is looking at and leaning into the most selfless savior, selfless person that's ever existed. This is what we've entered into. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have 
secured salvation for us. We thank you that you have overcome every circumstance, every injustice. We thank you that you didn't turn inward, but that you continue to focus on the mission, on your place as a son, securing for us that place as sons and daughters of you, Father. And so we thank you that you've secured that for us. And I pray that you would remind us of that, Lord, that security we do have, that security we do have that leads to, that extends to every circumstance we might find ourselves in. We thank you that you are the one who's going to take us with you one day. You're the one who secured that. And I pray that you would give us a hope and security that that affords us. Lord, may you remind us this day of that beautiful gospel that you've uh, secured. You died in our place. You rose from the dead. Um, and with you, we will rise too. And so we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.